to the Champions of Growth, a podcast of the Association of National Advertisers. I'm Matthew Schwartz. Our topic today, how is the customer experience changing? At face value, the customer experience is how people feel about your brand as they go through every stage of the purchasing process. But consumer behavior is evolving at a rapid clip, accelerated by the pandemic, and the customer experience may soon spell the difference between people who sincerely like your brand and cheerfully recommend it to friends and family on their social channels, and people who vow never to buy a femur company again because they had one lousy experience, memorable for all the wrong reasons. The customer experience, of course, is a great vehicle for brand value, and marketers can boost their own value by driving the process. But how do CMOs define customer experience precisely, or is it a drain when it comes to marketing budgets and decent returns? Just 4% of 260 CX senior executives said their CX measurement enables them to calculate the decision's return on investment, according to a McKinsey survey released earlier this year. And just 13% said they are confident their organization can take action on CX issues in real time. So for all the promise of customer experience, do marketers face the risk of throwing good money after bad if they can't get a handle on how to measure it? Here to discuss the customer experience are John Picoult, founder and principal of Watermark Consulting, which specializes in customer experience. John is also author of the recently published From Impressed to Obsessed, 12 Principles for Turning Customers and Employees into Lifelong Fans. Also joining us is Nate Henderson, CEO of Built, which provides 3D interactive instructions for products requiring assembly, installation, setup, and maintenance, and partners with hundreds of brands. Welcome to Champions of Growth. John, I'd like to start with you. What is the customer experience and what does it mean for CMOs right now? Well, Matthew, uh, thanks. I'm happy to be here with you. And uh, I like a succinct definition of customer experience. So I define it as how customers feel about their interactions with you. And just to unpack a few of those words, the word customer should be used broadly. Sometimes the customer is individual consumer. Sometimes it's an institution. Sometimes it might be a colleague, just a few steps down the hall or a member of your staff even. Second, the word feel. Customer experience is not about a rational, logical evaluation of the experience. People's perceptions are largely going to be influenced by the emotional resonance of the experience. So that's an important word. And then lastly, interactions. Interactions comprises every live, digital, and print touch point that customers may encounter from pre-sale to post-sale. So I think for CMOs, they really need to embrace a broad definition of customer experience and appreciate their role in shaping it, which is not something, mind you, that they can do alone because CMOs are often focused on how to define and articulate a, a company's brand promise, but their colleagues, in sales, in service, in manufacturing, they need to work with them to make sure that promise is being fulfilled. And uh, what's the difference between customer experience and customer service? Are those terms interchangeable? I definitely don't think they're interchangeable. Uh, customer service is but one part of the end-to-end -end customer experience. And uh, you, know, you need to think of the experience as encompassing everything from pre-sale to post-sale. Customer service is you know, just one small element of that. Actually, it's kind of interesting. You could argue that in many types of businesses, the need for customer service suggests that there might be a problem with the customer experience. So if you have a poorly designed product, for 
example, or one that comes with incomprehensible assembly instructions, you're actually going to trigger the need for customer service. And no matter how good that service is, it doesn't mean that your customer had a good experience overall because nobody wakes up in the morning and says, gee, I can't wait to call the manufacturer of my new appliance, or I can't wait to call my credit card company or my utility. So customer service is just a one component of customer experience. And if you have a lot of need for customer service, it often indicates there's probably something wrong with your experience in general. And that perhaps circles back to uh, what you just said a moment ago about marketers having a sort of a holistic approach operationally. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, it's important for marketers to realize that they, they're part of a larger team that has to work together to not just define the value proposition, but to make sure it is fulfilled. And in your book, John, you use an analogy describing a great customer experience as being like a beautifully choreographed performance, complete with both onstage and backstage components. Can you elaborate? And how do consumer-facing marketers bring that to life in meaningful ways? I love the analogy of a great customer experience being like a perfectly choreographed stage performance. And the reason I say that is because companies that do this well, they leave nothing to chance. So if you think about a, a well choreographed stage performance, every line of dialogue, every gesture, every dance step, it's carefully thought out and intentionally designed with the goal of bringing the audience to their feet, raving, wanting more, and then leaving the theater talking about you and telling others about the performance, which is exactly exactly what kind of reaction you want to elicit when you're in business, you know, to get people to rave about you and tell others about you. So if you take that analogy a step further, there's the onstage piece, which is basically everything your customers can see, feel, hear, touch, smell. And then you've got the backstage piece, which is everything that's happening behind the curtain that while invisible to your customers, still necessarily influences the quality of the performance of the experience that they're going to get. And, you know, one example of a backstage influence would be how do you hire and select the actors and actresses that are part of the performance. Because if you're not bringing into the organization people who have the customer experience gene, well, it's, you're, they're going to have a tough time really delivering that impressive experience uh, to your audience. So in terms of my advice for marketers, first on stage, I would say just leave nothing to chance. Remember, this is an exercise in choreography. And so the entire pre-sale to post-sale customer experience demands to be very deliberately and thoughtfully designed. And then second, for CMOs from a backstage standpoint, make sure your teams are properly equipped, engaged, and inspired to choreograph and deliver that great experience that, that you're aspiring to create. Do you think the backstage part gets too short shrift among Absolutely. these days? Absolutely. I think that it's a lot more glamorous, I think, to focus on the onstage piece and the things that the glossy website or, you know, the retail store uh, setup. And those are all important, but you are not going to get where you want to be if that backstage piece is not in perfect alignment with the customer experience vision that you have set out. Because ultimately, it's your staff that's going to need to be able to deliver that experience, whether it's from how they design products and manufacture them or in a retail environment how they interact live and in person with customers. And uh, Nate, your company provides uh, official 3D instructions for thousands of products that require assembly or installation. Can you share how this touch point on the customer journey affects the customer experience? Absolutely, Matthew. And, then, and I'll go back to John's own word 
words, when we think about that perfectly orchestrated, choreographed experience with it, one of the terms that he uses in the book is, you know, peaks and valleys. In most customer experiences today, because people use paper, it's a very frustrating, very disappointed valley. People don't like it. It's the first interaction with the product when they walk away really, really frustrated by a bad assembly experience. We have sought to flip that around and instead turn that into a peak, into something that is actually enabling, empowering. So when someone finishes that first interaction with the product, they are leading in the direction of being a great promoter of the brand. They're excited about it. The product's going to work. And we just accelerate that customer experience in this first touch moment. Nate, how do you convince skeptics and the C-suite, I guess we're sort of talking directly to the horse's mouth here, but that there's real meaning, real value in having a customer experience that will distinguish the brand? There are a number of different ways that you can do it, but it really comes down to, at the end of the day, knowing the value of your priority episodes. Again, as John has just talked about, the sequence of the play, you need to understand that there are some moments that are more important than others in it. And when we flip the discussion in the business to say, well, customer support will will fix that. And we lay it out and say, no, let's be intentional in our design. Let's be proactive about it. We start to realize that there are really important moments. There are ones that really do matter more than others. As you drill down and understand the customer feedback, the customer frustration in those moments, in most cases, it becomes very, very obvious what the economic impact is. So ours, for example, with it, we impact returns, customer support costs, knowing that there is a built experience up front in the, in the buying process actually increases the likelihood of someone to buy the product. But you have to roll up your sleeves and dig into that customer decision point and saying, why are they choosing to forward or not? Or why are they talking about my brand or not? And what are the consequences? So they're there. You just have to roll up your sleeves and find those impacts. And to what extent are those moments you talk about, Nate, informing budget? And is that getting to a more granular point in terms of when you talk about those moments? Are those moments increasing? And therefore, is is it becoming more of a challenge to figure out where to put your budget? I don't think that it is. If you will take the time as a business to really understand where the friction is in your customer experience, I think it's actually a lot easier to pinpoint these things. Now, it's a different question of the CMO and a CEO. Do you have the courage to actually do something about it? I know one CEO, for example, in a company that is very fast growing, they just said, we're not going to hide it. Anymore. And as a C-suite team, we're going to embrace those friction things and we're going to feel them. We're going to help solve them ourselves. And then it becomes very obvious where you should be placing your budget, but you also get to see the upside, you know, the top line revenue impact, the profitability impacts when you just have so many more promoters of your brand out there, these things start to become fairly obvious as well. And John, I wonder if the marketing uh, and ad industries are taking too lofty approach to the customer experience these days. Many companies continually subject customers to a variety of indignities, long call center waits, hidden fees, stores where you can't find a staffer to show you where the bath towels are. So don't more brands need to take customer experience a bit more seriously and start to remedy what are just some basic expectations among consumers? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in my research for the book, I did some consumer polling. And what it indicated is that people sadly have become accustomed to really crummy customer experiences. You know, just to give you an example, uh, in my research, half of consumers said that they weren't at all surprised when they have trouble reaching someone at a company to get assistance. More than half aren't even slightly surprised when a company rep fails to follow through on a commitment, even if it's just 
just as simple as I will, you know, calling them back, calling the customer back when they said they would. And so for a lot of people, I think the idea of touting that, you know, for example, when you call us, we're going to answer the phone with a live, competent person, that doesn't seem very glamorous. But consistently delivering on those fundamentals makes a big difference these days, since so many firms falter in that regard. And so basic things like having staff that are available in a store, being able to find them for find the towels or whatever, having people be able to call an 800 line and not wait for eight hours as some horror stories have been in the press recently uh, with certain industries. That which in the past people might have viewed as sort of a fundamental, a basic expectation, a table stake, many firms aren't delivering on those. And so there's an opportunity for companies to differentiate themselves by just handling those details, those basic elements exceptionally well. So in the sense of neutralizing, if you're the brand manager, what has become a punchline, essentially? Oh, I actually got a person on the phone. Is not to be underestimated? I don't think so. I really don't. Because think of your own experience as a consumer when, you know, you go to find someone in a retail location for help and you actually like turn the corner and there's someone right there, you know, with a smile ready to help you. You're almost like delighted. You're delighted that somebody was in the store to help you. Just the same when you pick up the phone and you call for telephone customer service and you don't have to go through the seven levels of hell to get through an IVR to speak to someone and you actually get someone on the phone within a matter of seconds instead of hours, what you walk away and you're like, wow, that was pretty cool. So yeah, I don't think that any company should underestimate the impact these days of uh, delivering table stake elements like that in a consistently effective way. And John, we had previously talked about the economic calculus of the customer experience. To counter the McKinsey data I referred to in the intro about the difficulties measuring CX, your book says customer experience leaders outperformed broader market, generating a total return that was 108 points higher than the S&P 500 index. So my question is, how do marketers calculate the ROI of customer experience and start to model the effort? First, just to refer back to that study that you were mentioning, you know, because I think it's really important at a macro level, that data in terms of helping marketers to persuade others that there is value in customer experience differentiation. You know, not only did those customer experience leading firms outperform the S&P 500 index, they actually outperformed the worst companies in customer experience by a three to one ratio in shareholder return. And this is not a year or three years or five years we're talking about. This is actually over a decade. This is 13 years of data that's indicating that. So I find that study is very helpful in terms of getting skeptics to at least entertain the idea that, gee, there might be something here. You know, the return from customer experience might not be so soft and intangible as I thought it was. Now, that's not to say that once you look at that study, you write a blank, you know, you have a blank check and you just invest as much as, as you want in customer experience. However, getting to your question then, so how do marketers calculate the ROI on sort of a more micro level within their business? A few thoughts on how to do that. One is make sure you're tracking how business is coming into you because referral activity is certainly a really helpful measure of customer experience success. You know, it's a revenue level measure, but it is a helpful one. Second, on the expense side, you could monitor how upstream improvements in the customer experience are influencing downstream activity and associated expenses. And I think that Nate's company is a great example of this where, you know, they've seen that when people are have a tool that 
allows them to much more easily assemble a grill, a children's play set, whatever, that there are savings in the customer service arena because people don't have a need to call and get help. So that's another way to see the ROI. And then the last way I'd say is you want to start classifying your customers into categories that reflect their sentiment to you. A popular one that I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of is Net Promoter Score, which is used by two-thirds of the Fortune 1000. Whatever the measure is that you use, though, if you're able to start classifying the customers that love you versus the ones that despise you, you can then start to look at what is the lifetime value of those two groups. And I guarantee you, you're going to see a very big difference in favor of the ones that love you because they are going to buy more from you, they're going to be less price sensitive, and they're actually going to complain less and therefore drive less expense in your your organization. Is the trend right now in terms of the spectrum more toward those existing customers who are a lot more prone to enjoy the experience as opposed to people on the fence and the whole notion of it's expensive to acquire new customers and be depending upon the company and sector, of course. But what's your take on that? The idealist in me would like to say that businesses are focusing on their current customers. But from a pragmatic standpoint, unfortunately, in certain industries, I know that's just not true. There are certain industries where companies are just enamored with the idea of acquiring new customers at the expense of keeping their existing ones happy. And they just don't step back and realize how unproductive and how expensive it is over the long term to have to keep pouring new customers into the top of the funnel because so many are leaking out out of the bottom of the bucket, but they just don't stop to think in those terms. So yeah, unfortunately, I don't think that the focus is in the right place. And I think a good tangible manifestation of that is look at all the policies and practices that many companies have that essentially treat new customers better than existing loyal ones. I think that's a great example of why it's a misplaced focus. Okay. And that sort of plays into my next question for you, Nat, particularly what uh, John said about the bottom of the bucket. How do uh, companies, marketing departments with constrained budgets, not necessarily your enterprise companies, but you know, SMBs, B2B companies in particular, again, how do they offer a customer experience since it costs more money to do so, doesn't it? I don't think that it does. It's a question of where you're making your investments. I think most companies, as they go through this exercise, they'll see that they're spending way too much in reactive customer experience, things like customer service or really significant returns policies. No, front load this here. We commonly will tell a a customer, if you'll invest in having a great experience up front, we can, for every dollar you give us, we can return 10 back to you. And that's fairly consistent, I think, with most proactive efforts with it. So is it a matter of will then in terms of no, it's just more sane to spend the money up front and you'll most likely see it on the return? I think all of us know this intuitively. If we sit back and uh, as John has said, think about our own customer experiences. And if we set as a guideline there, it is far easier to continue to make a current customer successful than to lose them and try to convince them to come back. I mean, at some point you're going to run out of customers. If you're creating bad experiences, you're going to run out of people that have positive things to say about you. That's just an intuitive thing for all of us to think about. And so it's really just remarshalling things and saying, let's make the investments on the proactive side. But part of that is you have to be very good at defining what success looks like. Who is your customer and what does it really take to enrich their life? Is there not enough drill down on that question these days, Nate? Who is your customer? How do we define Uh, success? Is there not enough? I know they ask it, of course, but is there not enough drill down or is there not enough, again, more um, depth to it? 
I think a lot of people are asking the question, but too many businesses are so quarterly driven, especially those in the public markets, that there isn't the patience and the wherewithal to really answer that question and follow through with it in the way that they need to. Okay. From your own perspective, how has the pandemic changed the equation when it comes to the customer experience? People just being at home has, has caused people to spend a lot more time with products and not live so furious with lives. But it was an interesting thing for us in that as a growing company, when the pandemic started, not knowing what was going to happen in the next couple of years, we decided, hey, let's be really conservative on our outbound you know, marketing efforts. And let's really test this hypothesis around the value of a great customer experience. I mean, ours, we've spent years curating this and what we do with our customers and really fine tuning that customer experience as it relates to assembly, we focus on this first and foremost every single day. And the result was that through the pandemic, we grew very solid triple digits and spent less than $1,000 on outbound marketing. I mean, think about that for a minute. That is staggering a company for us and what we're doing. And the reality was we had so many promoters out there of our current business that it was just referral after referral after referral of people that had used the built experience on a weekend and said, gee, I use this to assemble a grill. You help me with my company that does, you know, shelving or any other product that has a hands-on customer experience. And, and so we're living proof of those metrics that John talked about. If you focus on making your first customer successful, they will bring you to your next five or 10 customers and it's real. Good old-fashioned word of mouth in a post-digital age? It's even more powerful today in the fact that you now have social media and it's so easy for someone to just take a selfie or you know post some simple comment. The simple word of mouth in our own personal networks has, you know, for the last couple of years been by far the most influential channel for convincing people to try or experience a different product. You know, 20 years ago to be athletes and so forth, it just isn't. Uh, we trust our personal networks far more now. And if you are willing and able to harness that prefaced by a great customer experience, that is the growth engine of the future. The businesses that are going to follow that track that John said and are going to way outperform the market, that is how they're going to grow. And John, I want you to talk about how companies can't advertise their way to an effective customer experience and this conflict between what is brand promotion and providing a real and distinguishable experience. Marketers can't reconcile the two. Do they jeopardize what could be success and incur a lot of waste? Yeah. So I just want to emphasize, you know, that phrase you use, because I think it's so critical for anyone in a marketing role, you know, not to diminish the value of marketing and advertising as a discipline, but you can't advertise, you cannot market your way to a great customer experience. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that this is as much an exercise in defining a brand promise as it is fulfilling it. So yeah, I think that your question is right on. If marketers can't connect those two things, if they can't reconcile them, I do think think they jeopardize success. You know, if you look at the annals of corporate history, they are littered with stories of companies that spent big on promoting their brand promise, their value proposition, a particular product or service, but ultimately failed because the brand promise wasn't really fulfilled by that product or service. And I think that what that underscores is how critical it is that marketers don't work in a vacuum. They've got to be joined at the hip with their sales, operations, manufacturing counterparts to make sure that what is being promised can actually be delivered because that will be the ultimate driver to success.
And uh, as we sort of come down the home stretch here, uh, Nate, uh, when we talked earlier, you uh, had this, uh, what I thought was a terrific uh, example of how to make customer uh, experience work, which is this book club model. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. First, it's important to understand that a great customer experience is actually the result of thousands of small decisions made across the organization. John just talked about being connected at the hip together. And that's absolutely true. You have so many people that impact these pieces. And so as a senior level executive, the real question you have to ask yourself is, okay, if I'm committing to having a great experience, how do I make sure that this is ingrained in the hearts and minds of my team members so that they are making these decisions autonomously? What we do to to facilitate facilitate this uh, process is with the core principle books, if you will, that really represent our customer experience, one of which we're going to be starting here in a matter of days with uh, with John's new book is all employees are required to read the book. And then we meet bi-weekly and led by myself, we actually go through chapter by chapter. And team members will meet in smaller groups independently, and then they come into the larger group meeting. And we actually talk about it. We put down on the board, so what are the key principles that apply to us? How do they help enlighten our understanding of our customer? And what tools do we need to use more of? And and so as we finish a a book, and and historically we've done Fred Reichelt's uh, The Ultimate Question that really talks about the net promoter system. We've used, for example, The Outward Mindset by uh, the Arbinger Institute. As you go through these things, the result is that you have this internal of these core principles. In the case of John's book, because you've got some really handy tools in it, you're handing your employees an understanding of why this matters, and then you're giving them personally the tools to make lots of small decisions to make that happen. And it's a beautiful thing because your employees, they want to enrich people's lives. They do. It just It's just natural in all of us. They get frustrated when a customer calls and is really angry and they can't solve something. They want to help them. Mm-hmm. And so if you'll focus again in that upfront design and that being proactive and say, how do I enable my organization to make a lot of these decisions on their own, that's when you have the massive change. Mm-hmm. That's when your employees start coming up with even greater ideas than you ever could. Mm-hmm. And this starts to become a change of culture, not just a, hey, CX logo that's up here. You actually change the way your business approaches your customers. And the end result is that everybody's measuring success the same way. And it's the way your end customer measures success. And a bonus from what you describe is more camaraderie among your employees in terms of having these sessions, if you will. Absolutely, because it's a very humbling moment. We're all learning. Yes, I'm the CEO. I'm still learning as well. We're all learning. We all have a responsibility to continue this effort and improve and understand how we can get better and and adopt the knowledge that comes. It puts everybody on a wonderful, even playing field and helps us all understand that we all have a piece of this and, and we all win together. And to wrap up today, as we begin to enter this uh, post-pandemic era and consumer expectations continue to change dramatically, can a company with a subpar customer experience actually succeed or perhaps worse, become irrelevant? Nate, first, uh, I'd like to get your take. I think as our world becomes more transparent, I think it's going to be harder and harder to hide a bad customer experience. It just, the gap is increasing when you look at companies like Tesla, when you look at, you know, Apple, for example, and these others that are just pushing the boundaries on this, even though you're not in the automotive industry, that Tesla experience, you are now being compared to it. And so those companies that are disciplined enough and proactive enough to engage in this way 
are going to see success that has just been unimagined in history. But those that don't, the blade will be very, very sharp. And in the next five years, I think the bar is going to be set so high. It's good for all of us as, as users and consumers that the consequences are going to be even more severe for those that are just not willing to make the effort and really make the success of their customers their own. And John, you get the last word here. I think that in the short term, there might be companies that deliver a subpar experience and they could perhaps succeed in the short term based on market conditions in a certain type of competitive environment where, for example, there's a lack of available substitute products. However, the key thing to understand is that those types of environments are exactly the type that are attractive to disruptors who then eventually jump in and shake up a stodgy marketplace. You know, and you just have to ask Blockbuster Video with what Netflix did to them or ask the entire taxi industry with what Uber did to them. You know, those to me are examples of organizations that weren't offering top-notch customer experiences. Mm -hmm. And yep, they made a lot of money in the short term. But if you're in it for the long term, you're just not going going to succeed if customers aren't impressed with what you're offering. And no industry is immune. I really do not think that any industry is immune, except perhaps for those that due to regulation are true monopolies. And even those I don't think are long for the world. They don't go on forever. And with that, big thanks to our guest today for joining me on the ANA Champions of Growth podcast. John Picoult, founder and principal of Watermark Consulting, and Nate Henderson, CEO of Built. Until next time, thanks for listening.